You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. All right. Hello and welcome back to Citation Classics Adventure and Trauma. We're continuing our uh, our investigation into the pelvis and we're going to be talking about acetabulums today and acetabular fractures. Um, I do also want to make sure I start with a quick caveat. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm very clear. I'm, I'm a third year medical or excuse me, I'm a third year resident. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very much still fighting to, to get a good understanding of this. I think the the articles we have to talk about today really helped me kind of fill in some of the blanks and understanding how we evaluate acetabular fractures and how we can kind of talk to our patients about what they can expect from acetabular fractures and, and the decision for operative versus non-operative management and with operative management, what we can expect post-operatively. And, and it, this really did help kind of fill in some of the blanks for me. And so hopefully we can do the same for you guys. But uh, if you have greater insight, please reach out and, and share it with us. If you have questions, please reach out and, and ask so we can try to help fill in anything that we weren't able to, to make clear. Uh, but we've got four good articles today uh, to talk about that hopefully will start shedding a little bit of light on the, on the acetabulum and, and how we approach that. So without further ado, we'll get into a little bit of background information to set the scene, and then we'll go into some of the nitty gritty on some of the, 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 the papers today. So to start off with um, acetabular fractures, they're, they're definitely a challenging problem uh, that's approach is operative unless there's specific non-operative indications. And so that makes sense because you know the acetabulum, that's where the junction between your lower extremity and your pelvis. And then of course, the purpose of the pelvis is taking your weight from your lower extremities and be able to transmit it into the spine for upright walking. It's what separates, uh, it, it's huge for the evolution of mankind and, and being able to, to ambulate upright. Um, here on the, the screen, we have a picture of Letronel's classic um, classifications of of acetabular fractures. It's really important to, to be familiar with that. It's a, any paper that you read is gonna talk about this. Anytime we're discussing acetabular fractures, these come up and you'll see uh, in one of our papers later how it how it can associate with outcomes and, and different challenges with, um, with fixation. So as I said, they're, they're a challenging problem. It's uh, operative unless they're specific non-operative indications. And we'll talk about, so those, Non-operative indications are you must have a congruent joint. You need to have that uh, femoral head into the acetabulum and making sure that it's it's equal and equal spacing all around. You need to have an intact weight-bearing surface, right? Only part of the, the femur, the femoral head is, uh, is contacting the acetabulum to transfer the weight from the legs to the, uh, to the pelvis. And that weight-bearing surface needs to be intact or else they're gonna be at increased risk for, uh, for pain and for early, or, uh, early arthritic changes. And, and we'll talk about one of our papers is kind of evaluating how to determine what that weight bearing surface is. We'll talk about roof arc angles and subchondral arc on CT scans uh, very briefly beforehand to kind of set the, the scene. Uh, you need to have a stable joint and you can't be having a, any subluxation. Um, if you have a subluxated femoral head, that's not going to be a, a good joint to be walking around on for sure. Uh, or if it's dislocating, uh, if it's frankly dislocating as well, that's that's that is a that's a frowny face. That's a bad day. Um, and then of course, 
we have patient um, factors. We have the functional demand of the patient. We have the comorbidities of the patient. We have the patient expectations on what we're trying to get back to do. So just to, to recap, that's we need a congruent joint. We need an intact weight-bearing surface. We need a stable joint. We need to take into account the, the patient factors. On a similar, uh, similar note, we also have different things that we know that are determinants of outcome that are involved in how uh, acetabular fractures do. And one is, of course, the, uh, there's, there's things that we can control and things that we can't control. And it starts off with a lot of things we can't control. One, you have the, the comorbidities of the patient, you have the bone quality of the patient, the fracture pattern that they're presenting with, as well as cartilage damage sustained at the time of injury of the femoral head, as well as the acetabulum the vascularity of the head as far as the risk of AVN uh, or any associated neurologic injury. And then the things that we can control would be the, the accuracy of reduction or the stability of the reduction as well. So just to kind of briefly touch on some weight bearing surface before we dive in with one of the, the articles from Nick is um, whenever we're talking about weight bearing surface, we're talking about fractures without subluxation. As if anyone has subluxation, that kind of puts them into a more of a stability picture and we need to be addressing it in a different manner. Uh, starting way back in the day with Rowe and Lowell, there was noted the prognostic importance of displaced fractures of the roof of the acetabulum, or as they called it, the iliac portion of the acetabulum. That's kind of a initial way to start thinking about what the weight bearing surface is. It's the iliac portion of the acetabulum. In the 80s, Mata developed uh, roof arc measurements that describe any location of the fracture line in relation to the roof. Um, Nick will go into how to measure that, so I won't belabor that here, but Mata uh, created a pretty straightforward way to think of it, any, that any arc less than 45 degrees on any of the three views uh, was associated with an early onset of arthritis, and so it would be a consideration for um, operative fixation. And then uh, later on, Dr. Uh, Mata, as well as uh, one of his, um, his protégés uh, in his lineage, and, and the reason why I'm saying like this is that Dr. Olson, who I've had the pleasure to, to operate with here uh, during residency, uh, incredibly knowledgeable uh, individual. It's been, it's been fantastic. Um, he, he translated that 45 degree roof arc angle uh, to CT scans and found that uh, if you get a cut through the subchondral bone of the roof, and you scroll down 10 millimeters, you can know that the width of your cuts or the depth or the, the spacing of your cuts on CT. Um, 10 millimeters inferior to the subchondral bone of the roof was associated with 45 degrees, uh, 45 degree roof arc angle. And so they termed the evaluation of the CT subchondral arc by making sure that the, the fracture line did not exit within 10 millimeters inferior to the subchondral bone of the roof. Um, and then of course, we also got to talk about hip stability. Um, the posterior wall can't be assessed on roof arc, arc measurements and therefore must be evaluated on CT and CT has the advantage that it also can show us impaction. But as we're saying, when we're talking about hip stability, that's different than when we're talking about evaluating for roof arc or, or weight bearing dome. So there's kind of two separate things and we got to look at it in two separate ways. And those will be two of our papers that we talk about uh, today. So let's go ahead and get moving. Hey everybody, it's Nick Todd. I'm gonna to be talking about roof arc angle and the weight bearing surface of the acetabulum. I'm gonna do my best to pronounce the author's name. This was by Dr. Chuck Paiwan in the Journal of in the International Journal of the Care of the Injured in 2009. 
Nice. Good work. That was, that was good. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough name to pronounce. I'm going to do my best. I'm sorry if I'm uh, mispronouncing it. For sure. So a little background from his paper. The definition of the acetabular dome, he described it as the superior weight-bearing portion of the acetabulum at the junction of the anterior and posterior columns, including contributions from each. For those following along with the slides, I have a couple of pictures describing exactly what that is. I understand it might be a little difficult to uh, put those words to what we're actually talking about, but here's a picture for those following along. So the weight-bearing dome of the acetabulum is required to maintain hip stability. Integrity of the weight-bearing dome is therefore important when we're talking about acetabular fractures. The decision to operate or not should consider the integrity of this weight-bearing dome because unreduced fractures of the weight-bearing dome may lead to post-traumatic arthritis. So like we were talking about earlier, to help determine whether an acetabular fracture infringes on the weight-bearing dome, Mata et al. described the roof arc angle in 1986. This helps determine the amount of intact acetabular dome. So Dr. Chuck Pai Wong and his team conducted this study to measure additional weight-bearing domes on other x-ray views. He described these as the medial, anterior, and posterior roof arc angles that cross the weight-bearing dome in acetabular fractures. So what is a roof arc angle? This is the intersection between a vertical line drawn to the geometric center of the acetabulum and another line drawn through where the fracture intersects the acetabulum and the center of the acetabular dome. So the medial roof arc angle would be what we see on an AP view. And we can additionally measure the anterior and posterior roof arc angles. An anterior roof arc angle would be on the obturator oblique view and the posterior roof arc angle be on an iliac oblique view, just as described. So for those following along with the slides, here's a couple of pictures of each one of these views and with their associated measurements. So this study basically took 20 hips from 10 cadavers, five male, five female, average age of 70 years old. These specimens were dissected and simulated transverse acetabular fractures were made. So three x-ray views were obtained on the pelvises that were dissected, an AP, obturator oblique, and iliac oblique. The anterior, medial, and posterior roof arc angles were measured on all these cadavers. And then he just published his data. So the medial roof arc angle with this fracture that he simulated was found to be 46 degrees, plus or minus six degrees. Anterior roof arc angle was 52 degrees, plus or minus seven. And the posterior roof arc angle was 62, plus or minus eight. So as we were talking about earlier, the standard that Dr. Mata described previously in 1986 was 45 degrees. So there is a little bit of variation from this study in what was originally described from Dr. Mata. So in a quote from the paper, in an acetabular fracture, a medial roof arc angle less than 46 degrees, an anterior roof arc angle less than 52 degrees, 
or a posterior roof arc angle less than 61 degrees is considered to be involved in a weight-bearing area. So some drawbacks of this study include that, you know, we're only looking at 20 hips, 10 cadavers, and there is a decent amount of variation in the numbers that he published, you know, plus or minus six, plus or minus seven. So there is a little bit of variation. However, it is still worth considering these numbers when we're looking at someone who has a fracture that may be involving the weight-bearing area. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And, and I think one of the values of this paper is one, they talk about the original MATA uh, classification. It gets us familiar with talking and thinking in terms of, of roof arc angles, knowing and understanding what the medial roof arc angle was, what the anterior roof arc angle was, and the posterior roof arc angle was. And they talk about measuring theirs as compared to the acetabulum as, uh, as a, um, as the landmark for their vertical line and, and Dr. Mata did uh, through the, the femoral head. And so it's a little bit different of a way to do it, but, but it's pretty, um, it's pretty um, consistent across the way as far as what we're looking at. We're looking at where does this fracture uh, interact with the, the acetabulum. And so by looking at this, Nick, to throw it at you, so you've got someone you know, with an anterior roof arc angle of, of 50. And you know, by Mata, that's that's like a, you could consider non-op or, you know, but but here we're looking at, um, we're looking at, you know, but if we're looking at their absolute values, that's a that's someone that we consider operative, but you're exactly right. Like looking at those, those plus minus values that, you know, that falls within a little bit of our uncertainty. And so you're great, great job pointing that out. How, how would you kind of approach this, this patient? How, what, would, what would you do if you, you have this person that's exiting at 50 degrees, it's kind of on the border, or some would say yes, some would say no. What would you, how would you take care of this person? Yeah, sure. I think that's a very good point. I think it's important to look at the whole patient. You know, if we have someone we're going back and forth with on surgery, maybe we could do some protected weight bearing, follow up in the clinical setting, do some serial imaging, check for displacement. The patient has significant pain. That's something to keep in mind. And I think it's important to talk with the patient about, you know, their potential need for a hip arthroplasty if they go to non-operative allow sometime down the line. I think it's just important just to make them aware of, you know, their borderline and tell them what to expect with each, each option. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, Patients, patients will tell you what they want, you know, and, and you, you can give them as much information. And obviously it's always, you know, you always kind of him and ha, it's always shades of gray a little bit, but um, if we can give them a little bit more uh, understanding of what's going on, the reason why we're looking at these values, usually they can, they can definitely help us make that, that best decision. Um, nice, nice. Um, all right. So that's kind of talking about measuring and finding the weight bearing surface at, uh, if you search on orthobolts or online, you'll see there's actually uh, three or four different um, repeat studies about how to, to measure the roof arc angle, and it differs for medial and anterior and posterior. Uh, one of the advantages of the MATA classification is it's 45 on all of them. It's a great place to start, and you can kind of figure out uh, from there which ones are, are a little bit less, a little bit more, and you can kind of adjust fire a little bit um, from that baseline number. So it's a great place to start. And also keep in mind, um, we also can evaluate on CT scan because we're getting CT scan on all this to kind of look at the number of cuts that it takes to get to the, um, to the fracture line for that subchondral arc angle.
Um, all right, so let's talk about some stability. All right, hey guys, I'm Bree, and I'll be reviewing Dr. Farouzabadi and colleagues' 2015 article, Determining Stability in Posterior Wall Acetabular Fractures, and this was published in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. So historically, the need for surgical fixation for posterior wall fractures has been based on the congruency and stability of the fracture. Um, and the size of the posterior wall has been used as a correlate for hip stability with the size being based on multiple, me multiple methods of measurement. There were three main ones. And if you're following along with the slides, you can see um, kind of some of the diagrams of the different methods. But one of the first ones is the Calkins method, and this measures the ratio of intact posterior wall to the contralateral side based on the area of largest fracture involvement. The next is the Keith method, which compares the acetabular fracture depth at the level of the fovea to the contralateral side. And lastly, the Moed method is kind of a modification of the Keith method that we just talked about. And this compares the wall size at the level of the largest posterior wall deficit compared to the contralateral side at the same level. And historically, less than 20% of uh, wall involvement has been used as a landmark for stability, with greater than 50% indicating instability, but kind of the range between 20 and 50% of fracture involvement of the posterior wall has been considered indeterminate and that often requires dynamic exam under anesthesia. So in this study, they performed a retrospective review at a level one trauma center um, to review posterior wall acetabular fractures that underwent EUA over a 12 year period. And the purpose of this study was to determine if radiographic measures and other factors could help determine hip stability. And these factors included the percentage of femoral head coverage by the intact posterior wall, acetabular version, which they used two measurements, the roof edge angle and the equatorial angle at the fracture line, location of the fracture using the cranial exit point and the lateral central edge angle, as well as any history of dislocation of the hip joint. So they were able to identify 185 patients over the age of 18 with posterior wall acetabular fractures who underwent EUA with fluoroscopy to determine hip stability. 116 were categorized as stable and 22 as unstable. Um, and that was indicated by an increased medial clear space on imaging. And they actually found that uh, motor vehicle accidents were the most common cause of mechanism of injury. So after they performed uh, the analysis for exam under anesthesia, they found that 22 of the 185 fractures examined were unstable with history of dislocation, head coverage, and version not being statistically different between groups. But they did find that the size measured by the Keith and Moed methods, um, as well as the cranial exit point of the fracture were statistically different between fracture stability um, and the cranial exit point was significantly more uh, superior in unstable fractures with a five millimeter average from the acetabular dome compared to about 9.5 millimeters in stable fractures 
which they found indicated hip instability. So since the range for unstable fractures with the MOED method included wall sizes less than 20%, they did a subgroup analysis to further investigate uh, why this was. And they showed that five of the 22 unstable fractures um, had a wall size less than 20% with 80% of these fractures having a cranial exit point within five millimeters of the dome. And 80% of these also had a history of hip dislocation. And they found that really these findings indicate that small posterior wall fragments can potentially be unstable, especially those with a higher cranial exit point um, of fracture extension. So overall, what are the take-home points from this study? Essentially, um, location of the fracture, if it's at or within five millimeters of the acetabular dome, it should be considered unstable, and these patients should undergo exam under anesthesia to further, further investigate instability. They also showed that indeterminate fractures should be considered those with a posterior wall size less than 50%, as previous 20 to 50% range of indeterminates isn't able to adequately identify all unstable fractures. And lastly, soft tissue injury may impact the ability to determine hip stability in fractures with small wall sizes, um, as 80% of fractures with a wall size less than 20% in the MOED method had demonstrated a history of dislocation. Boom. Wow. What, what a conclusion. This conclusion slide is just absolute money. These three things, um, looking at these posterior wall fractures, this is, this is what we talk about when we're determining if, if things are stable or unstable. If it's very superior, it's, uh, it's has more, like you're saying, like has more cranial out, um, exit point unstable. Uh, you can't rely on that 20% for being, for telling you that it's going to be stable or unstable. Um, really rely on doing an examination under anesthesia. And, you know, if it's, if it's already dislocated, it's probably going to be, uh, it's probably going to be uh, unstable. It's already been out and about uh, into the world. It's going to want to get out there and, and be there again, uh, unless we can convince it not to by doing some surgery. And so the, the one question I had for you, Breeze, we talk about these fractures. And so we, we look about at the CT scan and usually you've got this, um, you've got this fragment that's kind of there and we can measure how big that fragment is. Uh, and then usually there's, there's also from, from the fracture, you also have some impaction, right? It's not just a pure tension uh, failure where it's that nice clean fracture line. Usually it's coming from uh, the femoral head coming and banging against that acetabulum. So there's some marginal impaction. When you're, when you're measuring, do you, are we including that? How, are we not including that? How, how are we um, considering the marginal impaction? Yeah. So marginal impaction injuries, they're really representing a severe form of intraarticular fracture um, where kind of the normal arc of the acetabulum changes and slope due to that impaction. Um, so we should be including this in the measurement of the wall size of the acetabulum involved um, so we can more accurate, accurately determine if it is stable or unstable and then progress into non-operative or operative management from that point. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not normal. Uh, it's not normal acetabulum. It's not going to be helping us maintain any uh, type of stability. It's not that normal arc. Um, and then also, if you're having that 
impaction, it's going to be hard. Also, it's something to consider and look at before you're doing surgery because you're going to want to try to, to get that back elevated or else um, you're going to have a persistent step off and, and we know people don't do well with that. Um, nice. All right. All right. So that's those are two big ways of, um, of evaluating our uh, hips preoperatively to determine if the if the weight bearing surface is involved and or if there's some good if there's stability or if there's instability that we need to address we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit for these next two papers and uh we're going to talk about outcomes from from acetabular fractures this is kind of looking back and seeing is there anything that that we can talk with our patients about what they can expect or, or we can look at and say you know what this is why we know that there's different indications for our, our procedures. But the first, the first one we have is uh, two to 20 year survivorship of the hip in 810 patients with operatively treated acetabular fractures. Um, this is by uh, Tenast, Najibi, and Mata. And I apologize once again if I, if I messed up any of those names, but this is a part of uh, Dr. Mata's lineage. And this was published in JBJS in 2012. There's a, before I get into it, there's a ton, ton of information in this article. Um, if you get a chance to just even look at some of the tables and kind of spend some time and understand what they're reporting, there is just outcomes and approaches and, and everything that they looked at absolutely everything for uh, 810 patients, these trends of these patients that were all treated by Dr. Mata. And so it, it's, it's, really kind of fascinating to see how the treatment evolved and also what this tells us about all these different patterns. And I'll try to, I mean, we're, we're talking about this over a podcast, so it's, it's going to be hard to really dive into all that quite so much. I'll try to hit the high points and kind of the, the, uh, the headlines so that way some, you can kind of know what, what the high things to remember from this paper are, but I definitely highly encourage you to take a look at this. Um, if you get a chance, um, so what were the aims of the surgery? We have the, they wanted to determine the cumulative two to 20 year survivorship of open reduction internal fixation for acetabular fracture. They also wanted to be able to take a look and identify any predictors that might uh, predict conversion to total hip. So a failure of the reduction you could consider would be uh, conversion to THA. Um, and then also they wanted to try to create a predictive model that calculates probability of the need for a, a THA in the future. So initially they looked at um, 1,319 consecutive acetabular fractures treated by one surgeon by Dr. Mata over 26 years. 87 over that time period were non-operative. 12 went under an acute total hip. Um, 12 were periprosthetic fractures. There were 259 with less than two years of follow-up and 133 were lost to follow-up. And so that leaves us with our, our 800 uh, <laughs> and 10. They did a Kaplan-Meier survivorship analysis of the hip, as well as univariate and multivariate Cox regression to identify negative predictors. Um, I will be the first one to tell you that I do not have a great um, stats background. Uh, I really trust uh, the editors and and uh, of these of these big um, journals in order to 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 make sure that these statistics are up to up to snuff and and try to trust that as much as I can. Um, but uh, univariate and multivariate Cox regression sounds really cool. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about, they, they did a really good job and they're uh, a very uh, rigorous approach to, to all of this data. 
So to, to kind of hit some just in general interesting facts uh, based on the results and, uh, and kind of when they were looking at these things, so for some of um, things to consider. One is 11% of their patients had a nerve palsy pre-op and 10% of their patients had sciatic nerve palsy and 1% were superior gluteal nerve palsy. This is kind of a good, a good number to keep in mind when we're evaluating these patients that you, have, you know, one in 10 had a nerve palsy preoperatively. And so that's something that we need to make sure we're looking for. 30% um, had a simple fracture pattern and based on the electronail classification, whereas 70% had an associated fracture pattern. I think that's just good for our, our own knowledge as far as the, um, the likelihood of different fracture patterns for, for these patients. And then while they were treating these fractures, they did use three different approaches depending on the fracture. Um, they did either a Coker-Langenbeck, an ilioinguinal, or the extended iliofemoral. And one of their tables, table one, goes into which approach they did for each fracture type. And so it's it's very interesting to see kind of that breakdown, you know, their, what ones you're doing different things for. And so like the ilioinguinal, 96% you know, of their anterior columns, they fixed through an ilioinguinal, you know, uh, posterior wall fractures, 97% they did through a Coker-Langenbeck. It makes sense when you're talking about where these where these uh, fractures are, uh, but it's it's good to see that kind of that carry on through. Um, then postoperatively, they they evaluated the accuracy of reduction, and so they did this on plain radiographs. They did it on AP and Judes, and they looked for alteration of the six acetabular reference lines, and so that's the iliopectinal line, the ilioischial line, the teardrop, the anterior and posterior wall of acetabulum, as well as the acetabular fossa. Um, they either classified their reductions as either anatomic, which is basically less than one millimeter of displacement, imperfect, which is two to three, or poor, which is greater than three. And we know that greater than three is associated with increased um, uh, postoperative um, osteoarthritic development. And so that's how they chose the three millimeters there. They also evaluated, as you saw, we had over a hundred um, folks that didn't follow up and we had over 200 that were less than two uh, years and so they did a best case worst case evaluation where they took all those over 300 patients added it back into the cohort and then they assumed best case you know if there were if no fractures with insufficient follow-up failed and then they did worst case if all the fractures of those with insufficient follow-up failed so they either put them uh, the th over 300 patients either into failure or they put them into success and saw what they did with their numbers. And I thought that was a really good uh, way to approach this. They had a significant number of people that of their cohort that weren't able to uh, include. And so it's nice to be able to see that best case, worst case. And that kind of a, that shows the thoroughness of their evaluation of, um, of all of these patients. Um, I have two pictures up here to kind of talk about some interesting trends and, and one of them is talking about the prevalence of the different approaches over the years. And in the 1980s, the, between ilia inguinal, Coker-Langenbeck and extended iliofemoral, they were pretty much equal, you know, between 30 and 40 for each one of them. And then over the course of the 25 years into 2005, we just see the extended iliofemoral just fall out of favor, just, just not using that anymore. Um, and, they, and they break it down also by the approach and any, any um, combined approaches. And you start seeing the combined approaches start happening a, a little bit more in the late 90s and then start going away again, kind of as 
the surgeon gains more familiarity with what they can, uh, what they're able to accomplish uh, through the different approaches and, and how to do more with less uh, kind of thing. Another interesting uh, trend is you can just see um, reductions got better uh, over the years, over the course of a 25 year career. You, it's, it's interesting to just see you know, that, you know, people do get better the more they do things. It makes sense. We've seen it time and time again, but it's, it's very interesting to kind of see in a, in a graphical uh, representation. Um, so here's, here's, a, uh, here's the big, so into the meat. So we'll talk about um, when they looked at all of their follow-up and they looked at their imaging, they saw a mean post-op displacement across the board of 0.9 millimeters plus 1.9. So pretty darn good. I think what's a little bit more telling or more, more helpful for us is uh, they had anatomic in 75%, they had imperfect reduction in 18% and poor in 4%. So pretty darn good, they did a really good job. And then they did some further analysis and they found anatomic reduction is higher in simple fractures as compared to the associated types. So associated ones more complex, makes sense. Uh, anatomic reduction was higher in patients treated without delayed treatment. So it makes sense. So you're getting to a, a more acute fracture. There hasn't been any kind of interval healing or callus formation. It might be a little bit easier to get that, uh, that fracture mobilized and get it reduced. And also anatomic reduction was higher in those that were younger than 40. And so maybe a little bit better bone quality. Once again, maybe a little bit better uh, mobility of the fracture fragments. They also looked at uh, the anatomic imperfect poor reduction based on the, the fracture type beyond just simple and associated. And they found that folks with a posterior wall or an associated posterior wall and posterior column had, had uh, good or anatomic reductions, uh, whereas associated both columns were associated with having poor outcomes. And beyond that, there, there wasn't any statistically significant difference between uh, the various different fracture patterns, but the posterior wall and posterior column, or sorry, posterior wall, as well as the posterior wall, posterior column associated had good reductions, whereas or anatomical and imperfect, whereas the associated both column uh, tended to have more likelihood of being imperfect or poor. Ooh, sorry, I'm hitting with the, all of this stuff, guys, but it, it but it, to summarize this, it's really, Anatomic reduction is higher in those with simple fracture patterns with, as opposed to associated uh, folks that we get to quicker and folks that are younger than 40. Um, and then the, the different fracture patterns that we just discussed. And then finally, to talk about the survivorship, this is kind of what we were talking about. And, they, and once again, we're talking about survivorship or, or um, basically conversion to total hip arthroplasty. And so they found that the cumulative 20 year for survivorship of the hips that they had the follow-up for was 79% at two years. And when they did the best case in that analysis where all the ones with insufficient follow-up were assumed to be successful, they had a survivorship of 86%. And in a worst case, if they assumed all of the folks with insufficient follow-up uh, failed was 52%. So that's a pretty big range that kind of reflects the number of people that didn't have follow-up at two years and didn't have, um, or were lost to follow-up. Uh, but I think it still is, is very valuable. It tells that there's, there's a good chunk of these patients who even at 20 years are doing well and not requiring a, a total hip arthroplasty. They're not feeling limited enough in order to pursue an, a total hip arthroplasty. And with total hip arthroplasty being a, a relatively common 
uh, procedure that patients are aware of and, and have high expectations for. I think it is it's something that we can actually trust that if they were having some limiting um, pain or, or symptoms that they would pursue it. And that I do want to say that is definitely a, a, a large amount of conjecture. Uh, but I think this is is reassuring to us that the oper open uh, reduction internal fixation is is allowing patients to get back to function and functioning well over the course of long years. Um, some other good information they have is uh, the survivorship of anterior wall fractures was actually low. And although that we saw that the both column fractures did have a, a likelihood of, um, of poor reduction, they did actually have high survivorship. And that, that, that does make sense a little bit because just because as we know with a associated both columns that does not involve the, uh, does not necessarily involve the acetabular surface. It just means that the uh, anterior and posterior columns are disrupted and there is no intact ilium between uh, the, the sacrum and the acetabular surface. So if you can get that, you know, in the neighborhood and get that to heal, that the acetabulum itself can be uh, well preserved and intact, preventing uh, conversion to total hip arthroplasty. Then finally, um, they did find that their mean time to failure was uh, 4.5 years plus or minus 6.2 years. So a little bit of a range, but you know, can talk to patients that usually in a, in a couple of years, they'd be able to kind of tell uh, kind of which direction they're heading and continue to follow them. Biggest thing is just talking to these folks that, you know, you had this big fracture of your acetabulum. We're going to try to get it back to, to as best as possible. There is some good survivorship of this, but if you need to have the, the big risk is having a total hip arthroplasty down the road. So conclusions of this paper. Uh, one is people can do well. They can, you know, the majority of people, 76 in their paper, um, can not require a total hip in, in 20 years. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, and then on their analysis, they did find that the negative predictors were a non-anatomic fracture reduction, an age of more than 40 years, that's what we're talking about, the anterior dip dislocation, we're talking about for the survivorship, post-operative incongruence of the acetabular roof that goes along with, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing good reductions of every joint surface. Um, involvement of the posterior acetabular wall that possibly could be related to uh, some residual instability. We were talking about the important of, importance of the posterior wall for creating stability of the uh, acetabulum, as well as acetabular impaction or, or a femoral head cartilage lesion, so damage to the cartilage at the time of injury. Uh, initial displacement of the articular surface, and as well as utilization of the extended iliofemoral approach. And that kind of goes along with the fact that we see that iliofemoral approach stopped, was stopped being uh, used quite as much as, as time went on. Okay, so that was, that was a big one. But the negative predictor values are kind of the, the, big, the big takeaways from this. And so, so it's a big conclusion. And then as well as some of the other things is different fracture patterns that influence. So hopefully that kind of give you some insight and some things to look at things to consider at time of initial injury, uh, and as well as uh, intraoperatively to make sure that we're preventing uh, or trying to prevent um, failure and, trend and conversion to total hip. Whew. All right, so I just talked a lot. I'm sorry, we're gonna hit you with one more. It's a little bit shorter. But we wanted to talk about um, non-operatively treated acetabular fractures. And so this is a, a paper by Ryan et al. in General of Orthopedic Trauma in 2017. It talks about the functional outcomes of elderly patients with non-operatively treated acetabular fractures that meet operative criteria. 
So folks that we normally would consider doing surgery in, but for whatever reason we were unable to, and we'll talk about what those reasons might be. Um, and we, in this paper, took a look at how do they do? Do they do bad, or do they do? Do they do okay? Do they do good? And to let us know kind of what we can help counsel some of our patients uh, about um, likelihoods if if we're considering doing non-op on these patients. So as we discussed, some patients we pursue non-operative management even uh, when we might proceed with an operative fixation in a younger or a healthier host. Um, previous studies prior to this one in 2017 showed poor outcomes in non-operative treated fractures, but they, the, the authors point out that you know these were previously treated with prolonged traction and non-weight bearing, which is really not great, particularly for our elderly or poor hosts. Um, and then also were evaluated with uh, inconsistent evaluation uh, and follow-up as well as with just non-validated outcome measures. So they did a retrospective case series. It was at two level one traumas over the course of 10 years from 2002 to 2012. They had uh, good inclusion and exclusion criteria. They included all, they, they included acetabular fractures that were treated non-operatively. The patient had to be 60 years old at the type of in, time of injury. And they, want, they needed to have a fracture pattern that was typically operative, either an incongruent joint, medialization of the femoral head, displacement of greater than two millimeters, or um, an intraarticular fragment. It is worth talking about the exclusion criteria because we talked about patients with, uh, uh, they exclude people who receive operative treatment, anyone less than 60, that makes sense. That makes their non-op and not elderly. Um, if they had a stable or congruent joint, no step off. So in other words, a what would normally be a non-operative fracture. The big thing that, that I saw with the exclusion criteria is they excluded anyone with posterior instability. And this just highlights how important the evaluation of, of stability of these hips are. If, if you're unstable, you need to fix that. Uh, and so that's that's kind of not, in this paper at least, is not up for debate. You know, we're, we're talking about other um, operative type fractures, ones with incongruent joints, medialization of the femoral head, articular displacement of greater than two millimeters or an intraarticular fragment. If they have instability, they're headed to surgery anyway. All right, hopefully that was, that was clear. Um, so they totally, they, they identified 95 non-op acetabulums. At time of follow-up, 32 were deceased, 16 they weren't able to contact, 13 had no operative indication, five were cognitively impaired, one had a pathologic fracture, uh, one was non-English speaker and one declined to be in the study. That, rely, that resulted in um, 26 patients remained. So that's only 27%. And that's definitely, a, that, hurts, that hurts the study uh, for sure. Just that anytime that you identify 95, but you're only able to talk to 26 patients, you know, that, that could be, a little bit of a selection bias that's being uh, introduced. Um, and they compared it to 234 acetabular fractures in patients greater than 60 treated in the same time frame. So first they took a look at, you know, who are these patients that, um, that received non-operative treatment? Uh, why was it? One was they saw was mostly was due to um, medical comorbidities. Sometimes it was from pre-existing osteoporosis uh, bone quality or fracture pattern, and then one patient refused surgery. These patients were treated with uh, uh, various weight-bearing protocols, either weight-bearing was tolerated, flat foot weight-bearing, or 10 were non-weight-bearing. They were all given DT DVT prophylaxis and started physical therapy immediately. And then they were evaluated with Womax scores and SF8 scores. 
um, postoperatively those their validated um, outcome scores. And their failures were either conversion to open reduction internal fixation or total hip. So here I have uh, kind of a one of the summary tables that's up, but basically this is looking at uh, what are the Molimax scores and this SF8 scores for patients that were treated with non-operative treatment? And then they separated into what were the Womac and SF8 scores of folks that had to go to conversion versus ones that continued on with their native hips. And so they had three patients that had to go to conversion. They had 23 that remained with their native hips. And we see that across the board, the Womac score is higher in folks who required a conversion. That makes sense. Uh, they they had less function, they had more pain, they had more stiffness, and overall their Womac was 21 as compared to the native hips um, who had uh, a Womac of 11. And then the, the SF8 score takes a look and then the SF8 scores of folks who required conversion were lower than the, the mean score. So basically folks are having more symptoms. Uh, and we're having more limitation, pursued the total hip arthroplasty. But it is a, a good thing to see that it is the N of three that required conversion as compared to the, the 23 that did not. Um, interesting point that I also wanted to bring up, kind of when we're talking about the inclusion exclusion criteria or when they're identifying their cohort, they did find that 23 of the 95 patients who underwent non-operative treatment were dead at one year after the injury, 24%. Overall mortality, mortality in the study was um, 34%, uh, which is 32 of 95. So this is important to discuss with the patient and the family, just like with a hip fracture where we talk about our classic, you know, 30%, 30%, 30%. Um, whenever we're talking about an S-tabular fracture in an elder patient, this, this can be a sign of uh, the underlying uh, end of life process. And so make sure that we're talking about with patients and, and families what to expect and the importance of, of being able to get up and moving and continued activity as much as possible. Um, so what are the conclusions from the study? Um, was basically that patients do pretty well overall with non-operative treatment, that is elderly patients with, uh, that were treated non-operatively, despite radiographic changes there, it's, there was thought, or the, the, the authors hypothesized that these patients are limited, but they expect, they accept it. They like, they know they had a big fracture. They know they're not gonna be able to do as much. So their Womac scores are relatively um, uh, reasonable because they're like, you know what, I, I don't feel that limited or I feel limited in a reasonable way. They found that some will need conversion. I said the N of three as compared to the N of 23. Um, this is also true of operatively treated fractures as well, and they, they didn't find an appreciable difference between the operative, the rate of conversion to total hip between the non-operatively versus the operatively treated patients. Um, they did have a, pa a important note. They did have a patient who ended up failing the non-operatively in the acute time period due to uh, continued pain with mobilization. And so in order, they changed the uh, treatment arm, or, or they, this is retrospective, so they didn't Change the treatment arm, but um, by continuing to talk with the patient in the, the two weeks after the surgery, just continue to have so much pain with any mobilization, they, they decided to move to operative treatment. And so overall, this is a reasonable option for our patients who are poor surgical candidates. We need to talk to them about their risk for possible um, total conversion to total hip later on down the line if they have increasing advancement of osteoarthritis. Um, they're going to be limited with their, their weight bearing, but they need to get around as much as possible. This is a risk uh, for uh, 
mortality or kind of a sign uh, of, of kind of the end of life process. Um, and that, you know, we have further options for them, continue to follow them. And if they're, they're frustrated and they need to, to move to onto the next stage of treatment, we can get that moving. Uh, and then final point was just none of these patients had posterior wall fractures or instability that, that once again, puts them into a different, a different, uh, a different pot. Uh, all right. So that is some, some acetabulum, some, some, a lot of talking, a, a lot of kind of data and evaluation. Um, I think the, the big, the big hitters are, are really that remember that these are operative, uh, fractures, unless we have very specific non-operative, um, criteria that the big risk factor down the road is conversion down to THA and that we'll continue to follow them and, and take a look. That was interesting to see from the MATA paper that the, the, the mean time frame for conversion was about 4.5 years uh, with, with some requiring it much earlier and some requiring it much later. Um, so hopefully gave you a little bit of insight into how to evaluate and, and what to expect with these. And, and we'll look forward to talking with you about some femurs here coming up a little bit more straightforward and some, some more interesting stuff going on. Thanks for tuning in guys.